Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. I was happy when Pastor Aaron asked me to preach, to know that he's been going through Genesis. I've been going through Genesis. I'm a little ahead of him. So I have preached this sermon at Redeemer, although it's going to be better this morning because I've had, this will be my third chance to work out all the problems and such and think of you throughout this week for application and pray for you. It's a passage I really uh, have enjoyed preaching through. And I also thought, you know, maybe because your church is starting to go through some transition, maybe I should have a one-off just for you. But this, God's providence and exposition always works itself out. And this sermon, this text is about God's sovereign plan, though things on the outside don't look quite like you'd expect them to fall out. There's still his plan. We know it for sure because the Bible tells us this about the episode we'll read with Jacob and Esau and their birth and just what happens after in their rivalry that, that starts to develop. Now, I just wanted to say a couple words of encouragement to you about this time of transition. Um, you know, the Lord has really provided for this church in a wonderful way. Pastor Aaron is a faithful man of God who's been delivering the Word of God very faithfully from the beginning. And now there's a transition that's before you. I'm confident the Lord will bring you someone else who will do that. Uh, we pastors, we know we have important roles to play, but we're not the church. Uh, the church are the people gathered and the elders you picked to shepherd the flock. And so when Paul started new churches, he didn't say, you know, go get a new pastor. He said, ordain elders in every place. Um, the strength of this kind of a church is you have an eldership that shepherds the flock. You have men that are growing in their understanding of the word and ability to preach the word. You're part of a presbytery with other churches. You're our sister church now, and we have the ability to help you too through this transition. So don't be anxious. The Lord will provide for you just as he'll provide for Pastor Aaron, Lisa, and his family. We'll always be connected with them. Uh, we love them and we'll enjoy seeing how the Lord takes this church and takes their ministry and we'll continue to see it multiplied. So be encouraged. I was thinking, um, sometimes people think that I was at, have been at Redeemer from the beginning. I'm the third pastor at Redeemer. Uh, they started the church in 93, 94, and then the founding pastor left in 96. The pastor before me, Pastor Mark, was there for five years, and then I became the senior pastor in 2001. So it's not too unusual to see some transition, different gift sets and such that sometimes work at different phases in the life of the church. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. God's hand's upon you, and you have many people supporting you and desiring to see God's best for you. With that as a bit of an intro to this passage, I want you to now look at Genesis 25. Uh, Pastor Aaron left off with Abraham's death, and the verses just before this are a bit of the lineage of Ishmael. Um, Ishmael was a man who received the blessings of God, but they weren't saving blessings, but they were blessings nevertheless. He saw great multiplication, great wealth. So the beginning of this chapter really caps off, God was faithful to deliver to, to Ishmael what he promised. And then it moves quickly into the life of Isaac and his son, Jacob. And that's what we see in transition. Now, I don't know how you view the sovereignty of God or the electing purposes of God. I know we're in a Presbyterian church, and maybe some of you came because you know, you know that's the angle those Presbyterians have. I would like to say that that's the angle the Bible has. And when you read this passage, we, we get a chance to see a messy outworking of human relationships, which shouldn't surprise us because most of our lives have some messiness in, this, in our lives like this. But that's not outside the purposes of God. It's not outside his sovereign plan. And we know this is the case because we get divine commentary in the book of Romans about what we're about to read. Um, you'll see God showing special favor to Abraham. Why? I mean, why Abraham? 
He shows special favor to Isaac. He didn't deserve it. He shows special favor. He shows grace to Jacob. He certainly doesn't deserve it. God's favor is something we don't deserve. That's what makes it grace. His favor to those who don't deserve it, in fact, really deserve his wrath, if we're being honest. And this is a mysterious thing, the way he shows grace. Now, at the same time, this is a big topic, a big subject. There's intricacies to the story that are very personal and practical and will apply to your life. We'll see that as we walk through the actions of these individuals while keeping an eye on the bigger lesson being taught to us. Hear now God's holy word. I'll read starting at verse 19 of Genesis 25 and down to verse 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are often left amazed by what we read in Scripture. This is one of those occasions. We see your sovereign decrees that seem to so straightforwardly be clear and obvious and determined, but we see how unpredictably your decrees fall out in time and space and in life and in reality. Lord, please help us by your Holy Spirit to understand and apply what we read from your holy word today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was in my teen years, that's when I first heard and understood the gospel, believed in the gospel, that the way to be right with God is through faith in Christ. I'd gone to church my whole life, but that message was pretty obscured, at least to my thinking. I didn't understand it until I heard somebody really spell it out clearly. The Spirit of God opened my eyes, made my mind to grasp the truth of what the Bible said, and I believed it. Now, from that moment, being incredibly raw, especially as it related to um, the Christian jargon, 
uh, the evangelical church. I didn't grow up in the evangelical church where people talked about Jesus a lot. I didn't really know how to relate with all that. I just knew that I had a lot of friends that did not believe in Christ, and they were going to go to hell if they did not come to know Christ. That's all I knew, and from that position, I would preach at them constantly in my teen years. I started going to church with a friend of mine named Nathan, whose mother and my mother worked together, and started going to their church to hear and learn more of the Bible. Now, I'd already gone ahead and started preaching what I knew to be the gospel before I knew much about the Bible. And as I was hearing the message of the Word of God, um, I started getting this strong sense about God's control or His sovereignty, His all-powerfulness. At the same time, as I was delivering this message of the gospel to friends of mine who I'd known all my life, I mean, they should listen to me, right? One after the other would reject what I was saying, and they would make fun of me pretty much for being a Jesus freak and such. And so I was struggling with this newfound faith. People wouldn't listen, and they wouldn't change. Then I was hearing from this church that God is sovereign. He's all-powerful over all of these things. The notion of his sovereignty, at least at first blush for me, it honestly offended me. Because then I started thinking, well, wait a minute. All these people I'm delivering this message to, including loved ones, family members, my own dad at the time, one of the most religious people I knew who did not know Christ personally, I'm sure of it. He, would, he told me that later when he came to Christ. Yet there's a man who I could preach to on blue in the face. If he's not one of God's chosen, you're telling me he won't come? And they'd say, no, he won't. They were, they were unabashed about it, unapologetic. And it really bothered me when I would hear this message over and over again from them. I knew they knew the Bible because they were opening it up every, every week in multiple times, morning and evening. But it was just my reality was frustrated and a little depressed and discouraged because I wanted people to know Christ but yet they're saying only those who God has chosen will believe. Then I started going to an evening service with the associate pastor, and he had started through the book of Romans. Now, he'd started long before I got there. He took 11 years to finish the book of Romans. No joke. He came to Romans chapter 9, and he was talking about this exact episode. Now, I want you to listen to this. We'll go to the text in a moment and walk through it. But as a backdrop, it's not often that we get a New Testament author tell us specifically what something means. And it's really a picture, a model for us to understand how this works. So what happens outwardly can be very messy. Make no mistake, it may defy our conventions or our wisdom, but it's still part of God's decree, His plan, and it's right. At the same time, we're responsible to maneuver within it and to respond to God and, and obey Him. It, it's mysterious. This grace of God is mysterious. But make no mistake, the Bible doesn't pull any punches. In Romans 9, listen to what it says, starting in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. See, this is the, the backdrop of God's decrees. We see how it falls out in the passage. Then Paul says, what shall we then say? Is there injustice on God's part? How can this be fair that he does this? By no means, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, verse 16, this is a guiding principle for this text this text from Genesis 25. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
Now, if you're new to this, it will be a bit offensive. I've got to be, I know, I was sitting where you're sitting. But before we go further, relax in this regard. The fact that you believe on Christ, that you're here, you trust, you believe in Jesus. You're hearing what I'm saying. It's a little offensive to you because it doesn't seem fair. But, but you believe in Jesus. You only believe in Jesus because he's shown this grace and favor to you. So be open to what the Spirit guides and directs you. Because I think when you learn it, you won't become less evangelistic or less wanting to share. You'll become more so because your confidence about how God saves will be bolstered. And there's a lot of other things in the mix of this passage as well. We find that God's grace is mysterious. Why? Because it's steered by his purposes rather than our expectations. Back to verse 16 of Romans 9. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This knowledge of his sovereign hand on things gives us great security in all things pertaining to life. So, to the passage, Genesis 25. On the one hand, the episode before us is a rather typical example of the messiness of people's personal lives as they relate to each other selfishly and sinfully. On the other hand, we'll see God still perfectly working his sovereign plan out. There's no hero in this passage. There's one slightly better than the other, but they're both scoundrels. And the parents ain't much better either. Let's see first the personal work that God does in the lives of these people. We see him growing their faith through trials that come up right away in Isaac and Rebekah's experience. This is something we can all relate with, God's use of trials to make us depend more on him. Verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel. Remember that great story of how he met, how they met. So he's 40 now when he's married. She's probably 15, maybe 20 years younger. We learn later in the text that he's 60 when they finally have a child. So 20 years without a child. That's a long time. A long time when you've been told that you are God's covenant bearer, that you're not going to have a child. Now, it's not as difficult as what Abraham and Sarah went through. And thankfully, Isaac didn't run ahead the same way Abraham and Sarah did. But 20 years, 20 years without a child, wondering what is God's hand in this. I'm 60 and I don't have a child yet. Isaac's thinking, yet I'm supposed to believe that the covenant's transferred through me. Isaac struggled. He was both carnal and spiritual at the same time. We can relate. But he really struggled. Yet he goes to the Lord, verse 21. He prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. This trial of childlessness drives Isaac to go to God in prayer. And this is one of the blessings of trials. We have to depend on God, and we have to go to him and speak to him about what it is, whatever it is for you, whatever long-term trial you may be dealing with. It could be health-related. It could be uh, child-related. It could be something in your parenting, in your marriage relationship. It could be uh, finances, whatever the case may be. God wants us to go to him with these concerns. And so he goes to the Lord. Remember, he is sovereign, yet he calls us to talk to him. As we talk to him, the process of prayer helps our wills to become more in line with his will over the course of time, accepting of what it is that God brings. That's one of the great blessings. Prayer doesn't change God's mind. Prayer helps our minds to be in line with God's will over sometimes long periods of time. This is what he's doing in the life of Isaac and Rebekah through this childlessness situation, this direct communication with God. Isaac goes to the Lord and the Lord granted his prayer, 
and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Well, the trials don't stop here. In fact, they begin now more in earnest for Rebekah. As she's bearing, she doesn't know there's twins at first. I don't know that maybe at some point they could tell, but early on it doesn't seem like it would be possible to know for sure. So she notices something's not right about this pregnancy. Something crazy is going on in her womb. This, this uh, struggle that must be happening. And she, she knows it's physical, but she's reading something more into it. You can tell that by what she says in verse 22. Yet another trial. The children struggle together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Lord, why is this turmoil in my womb happening? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Like Isaac, this trial drives her to ask God for his aid, his assistance, for him to explain to her what it is that's going on. She knows something's not quite right. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. He's prophesying or he's declaring something about her children. Now she knows for sure there's two of them. One shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Now, I want us to pause for a moment. I don't know how you think of this. We think we'd like to know the future of our children. You know, before we have our children, what will they look like? How many will we have? And then they're born. What will they grow up to look like or be like? What will they end up doing? We think we might be comforted by knowing what it is they'll do, but I don't think so, really. I think that, uh, wouldn't it be difficult if it was tough news in God's sovereign plan? In fact, it's kind of like that here. Um, we may not think of it that way because we just blow right ahead to, jo- to Jacob and Esau. But as the mother here, to know that there will be enmity between her two children, that's challenging. I know one of the biggest fears I had when my boys were younger, and it was nonstop battle royal in our house. How are they going to like each other? I mean, they're pounding each other into oblivion. I used to have to jump in and wrestle with them just to get them to not focus on each other so much until I got to a point where I couldn't get up off the ground very quickly any longer. But they're res- so I remember our wife, Sherry and I just, oh, I hope, these, I hope that they like each other. It doesn't seem like they do, because it did not up and through a certain point. And then all of a sudden, a, a, a switch flip, now they're like, they're best friends. But imagine if you were told, that's not going to be the case. In fact, they're going to war against each other. So this is a difficult anxiety that she would have to bear, knowing this truth. It's not necessarily a blessing for her to know. Certainly, when you read this, does it look like God's saying, this might happen? Or does this say, this is going to happen. This is God directing what will happen. Still, nevertheless, knowing God's sovereignty, his hand upon this entire situation, there will be some amount of security that comes from this for sure. But now we're left with a question that leads us into the greater question of the passage. Why is it that Jacob is picked over Esau? If we didn't know what Romans 9 said, you'd have to wonder. He's not much better than Esau. Why does God choose as he chooses? Why does God show grace? He certainly is not bound to show grace. Why does God give grace to some and not to others? Well, the way the story unfolds begins to shed some light on the mysterious grace of God. Grace is bestowed according to God's elective purposes. It's not beholden to our expectations or conventions. We know this is sure because that's what Romans 9 says. How God shows and gives grace It's not bound by our judgments of what's fair or what's not. Our judgments have nothing to do with how God thinks and acts and works. How God shows his grace is not dependent on our view of how we should want him to do it. I think that you should bless this person in this way, Lord. Let's see this unfold. Verse 24. When her days 
to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Now, the name Jacob means supplanter. And so it might be as so as they're watching, a midwife is watching the babies come out in how maybe a, a bit of a laugh or it'd be funny. Look, the second one's holding on to the heel. We'll call him, he's trying to supplant. He's trying to pull back and go, get, become first. It was probably even humorous, joyful for sure, not deceiver like it became later. Supplanter just meant that, look, he's not going to let this go. He doesn't want it. They're both, they're twins, but one comes out before the other and is the older. But boy, his hand's on that heel. It's like he's saying from the beginning, no, I'm equal with, or I'm going to pull him back and I'm going to get ahead of him. Now we see what happens as they grow up and the rivalry starts to take place and set the stage for what happens and unfolds in the chapters of Genesis to follow. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, to be clear, the passage isn't saying Esau is a stud, man's man, rugged guy. Jacob is kind of a pansy or a wimp or a wuss. That's not what he's saying. It's not what it means at all. In fact, the Jewish reader would see Jacob as the more refined, the more responsible one. What it means to say is that Esau is a skillful hunter. To be a skillful hunter, as some of the, some of the skillful hunters' wives know, they got to be out hunting a lot to be skillful. I mean, I hear that's the case. So if you're out hunting a lot, you're going to necessarily be giving up some of your responsibilities. Some things are not getting done. Again, as I hear, that might be the case for a skillful hunter. Now, think of the hunters in the Bible before this. The one we can remember is Nimrod, the mighty hunter in Babel. He was a wild man. He didn't walk to anybody's rules. That's the picture that Esau is. That's not a better picture. Now, Isaac likes it for what he gets from it. But Jacob's the one that you really would model after. It doesn't mean, again, that a dweller of the tents in those days means he was the businessman. He was the domestic overseer. He was the pastoral person, meaning he kept the flocks. Now, you would not call a modern cattle person or a person who keeps livestock any kind of a wimp. I mean, I dare you to do that to some of the ones I know. They're not wimps. It just means that he's a quiet man. He's a refined man. I mean, he has a self-control about him. He's working deals. That's what dwelling in tents means. He deals in uh, civilization, whereas Esau is off hunting and, and chasing game and such. It's true, there's a difference between them, uh, but it's not the way we might have thought about it. Candlish, who I refer to often as I go through Genesis, is a Scottish Presbyterian commentator he said, Esau's bold spirit found its fitting sphere in the exercise and the excitement of the chase of the wild sports in the field. Jacob, again, being of a milder, milder disposition, he addicted himself more to domestic pursuits and business. He was disposed to lead a more quiet pastoral life. He dwelt in tents and in the commerce that surrounded them, following the profession of a shepherd farmer tending his flocks and herds. And tilling the soil. That's the difference between the two. It should be noted. Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Isaac is a carnal man. Yes, he's spiritual, but 
He's very, very materialistic, and that which makes him feel good, he likes, and it often drives him. This will be a lesson all of us should gain hold of, as believers or unbelievers alike. Um, sensual things, things that we can taste, touch, feel, uh, those things have power, uh, and in their right usage aren't bad, but they can take us over. And this is what drives Isaac in this case. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac favored Esau, Rebekah favored Jacob. You can see the problem with that right off the bat. We see it again in the scriptures later with Jacob himself. Rather than contemplate the truth of the prophecy spoken to Rebekah, that there would be this conflict and she could have that in mind and move forward, she sides with Jacob and really presses that favoritism upon him. It had a, it had a profound impact on the relationship, not only between the parents, but also between the children, the sons. Now, look at this episode in verse 29. What a mess. No heroes here. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom and the Edomites come from Esau. We'll see them later, a thorn in the side of Israel. But we also see something of Esau's demeanor here, and I want you to notice it. He's a man of the earth. He's a, a practical materialist, is what I like to call him. He's not worried about the eternal life or spiritual life. He's worried about the material stuff and moving it around, people counting that to manipulate for his pleasure. That's how he lives. That's how he operates. He doesn't look much past today. He looks at the next hunting trip he'll be on. Now, these hunting trips would have been difficult um, these are not junkets that business people go to and they set you up in a shooting house and you shoot the deer when he comes out to eat the corn. This is, he's got to go out in the wilds and find. So he can go days sometimes and not actually be successful. Seems like one of those occasions. He comes back. He is really hungry. And he sees this red stew. The ancients used to think that red stew meant it had blood in it, and it probably did. And the ancient pagan idea was by eating some of this, ingesting some of this, you'd be revitalized from your exhaustion. So Esau sees this, wants immediate satisfaction. I need some of that red stew. Give me some of that red stew you have. I'm exhausted. Jacob, never, never uh, slow on the draw when it comes to gain something for his advantage. Sell me your birthright. Now, a birthright in those days was a cultural marker it was a, an important cultural marker. It meant that you would be the heir apparent to your father. It didn't mean that the other children would not be taken care of very well, in fact, but you had a primary role. And then on top of this, not only would you be viewed as this in society, um, you also had the spiritual benefits of being Abraham's progeny. Isaac doesn't, or Esau doesn't think much of that. Jacob doesn't even think that much of it himself either, not till later. It's sort of like this. My son, AJ, is the oldest, so because he's the oldest, when he turns 25, he would be the executor of our will. Um, I don't love him more than the other four or the other three, but I, he's the oldest. And so it makes sense that he be responsible, and he's thought of this, and we've had him think of his role as the oldest, and so he carries that. It just does. It's natural. Now, in antiquity, you could sell that birthright. You could transfer it to someone else. It could be willed to someone if you die prematurely. It could go to someone you name. So the, Nuziri, the, the, the tablets of Nuzi tell us this kind of transaction was not unusual in the ancient world. Esau knows this. Jacob knows this. Jacob sees some weakness in Esau. Sell me your birthright. How conniving is this? Yet, 
Romans says this was God's plan. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? We are sensual beings, and if we don't recognize the power of our appetites, they'll drive us, they'll enslave us, and they'll consume us. This is an evidence of that, as yet one of the many lessons from this passage. And few appetites are more powerful than hunger, because we need to eat to survive. I am about to die. One more reference to my children, because they're not here to defend themselves. Well, one of them is, but she's, she doesn't fall prey to the thing that I'm going to talk about here. Do you know what hangry is? So we had three boys, and we know what hangry is. It's hungry and ang- hunger that turns to anger, and you're hangry. I am starving are words that were uttered in my house. Now, if you look at me, you know nobody in my house is starving. Come on. But they were starving multiple times. Near death, they would say. At one point, when they were 16, 18, and 20, living in a house together, our grocery bill was 550 bucks every other week. They drank four to five gallons of milk per week. Dozens, of, how many chickens gave of their eggs? I couldn't tell you. When the boys were their hungriest, they were the crankiest and they were hangry. I've often said, if you wanted to stop, end a world conflict, for instance, just starve my boys for two or three days, drop them in the Russian-Ukrainian border, tell them there's a buffet in Moscow and the war would be over in a day. (laughs) Hangry. That's funny, but you know what I mean if you've seen somebody. This is a guy two or three days in the field truly feeling like he's got to have a meal. And he's speaking, I'm about to die, and I don't care about a birthright at this moment because my life now is what matters. Here's the thing. Esau is an example of what happens when a person becomes controlled by their senses. And brothers and sisters, any one of us could have this happen with any kind of these pleasures that could come upon us. Think of all the things we have exposure to, all the things that could grab a hold of us. Desires and appetites can't be trusted, and they have to be controlled. This is the the ongoing human challenge. Don't trust your feelings. Test your feelings. Think about this for a moment. Like, Why could not have Esau just said, move out of my way, I'm getting some of the stew? There's so many other answers that could have happened here. But he was earthly-minded, caught in the here and the now. He did not value the spiritual connection of his birthright. He valued the sensual over the spiritual. Jacob was ruthless, and Esau was impulsive and short-sighted. Esau's sensuality in this moment caused him to disrespect the sacredness and the specialness and the benefits and all that comes from having that birthright. Jacob, for all his foibles, did understand the significance of this. Jacob said, swear to me now, verse 33. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Just like that. And then to show this disrespect that Esau has for the whole of it, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went away. It doesn't say Jacob cheated him out. Jacob sinned by swindling his brother. The passage says forevermore, Esau despised his birthright. The greater sin is Esau's. Again, what area of sensual gratification do you find clouding your vision of the eternal today? Food, sex, having more stuff, alcohol, drugs. All these things take control subtly, and we lose all rational perspective. Think of the drug addict who only lives to get high. They cannot see past their next hit. 
no matter what. We're living in an era of mass sensual addictions. All the food we could possibly eat, we have. All the access we could possibly have to sexual stimulus is before us. Access to all kinds of substances that induce highs and euphoria. All possible access to money. Even if you don't have money, you can have money with a card and buy whatever you really want, at least for the moment. But the bills all come due on all of it. Many pressures upon us, stress and tensions. The promise of sensuality in this fallen world only leads to destruction. It leads us away from the spiritual, eternal value of the birthright and towards that which can never be satiated. Did all of this unfold because of how they were raised, Jacob and Esau? Well, I guess on the surface level you could say that for sure. But why did this unfold? Because God decreed it to unfold. God elects, chooses in a way that may defy our expectations. This whole story is an example of this. Back to Romans. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. What shall we send? Is God not fair? No, by no means we can say that. No person can say that. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is the mystery of God's grace. Noah is the one that God chose to bring about a gracious preservation of the seed. Why Noah? Abraham is the one that God chose from a host of other pagans to be the one to make a gracious covenant promise with that would finally be realized in the person of Jesus eventually. Why Abraham? Isaac, the one that God ordained to be the child of promise to Abraham and Sarah instead of any other children. Why Isaac? Jacob's the one chosen here. We could see what we see. Why Jacob? Yet he'll become Israel eventually, the father of the 12 tribes. After Jacob, God uses his son Joseph to save the 12 brothers and Israel in the line of the Messiah from Egypt, yet Judah is the one that God chose to bring the Messiah from. Why Judah over Joseph? Why was it Judah and Tamar? Why on earth these two? After Judah, it would be Moses. Why Moses? He had a temper. He couldn't speak very well. Eventually, it would be Boaz and Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David eventually, Solomon and several more kings, not all of whom were very dedicated to God at all. Why them? Hezekiah. Okay, give you a Hezekiah. But Manasseh? Ancestors of Messiah? Why? He chose Mary, chose Joseph. Why does God choose the way he does? Why did he choose you? Why did he choose me? Maybe you don't feel worthy. You're right. We're not worthy. Why would he choose us? Neither were any of these people. This is the mystery of God's grace. If your response to the offer of the gospel is to want to declare that message more than anything else in the universe, to have Christ, then you could be assured that that is evidence that you've been chosen because you would not choose that yourself. How do I know if I'm chosen? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you, uh, do you worship him? That's how you know if you're chosen. 
If he responds to the offer of the Gospels, I'm living here and now. What good is that message to me? I'm going out and living. You may not be chosen by God then. But here's the thing. Many who have been chosen by God reject the Gospel many times before they receive it, before they believe it. This is the mystery of God's grace. It's truly a mystery. Only he understands and know this. This text with Romans lets us know that's at work, but we don't know how it actually works out person to person. I have a friend who's envious of the belief of Christians. We text each other about every day. He's told me several times, I wish I could believe this like you believe it. I just don't. I can't. I pray that God will grant him faith. What if he isn't choosing? Then he is not. But as long as he has breath in his lungs, I will tell him that he needs to believe on Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, to be right with God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. What does knowledge of God's sovereignty do for us? I want to close by giving you just a few direct applications. First of all, if we find ourselves believing in the gospel, you can be sure of your salvation because you would not believe if it were not for God's work of regeneration in you. He has given you a heart of flesh to believe. Second, God's mysterious grace prompts us to give him all praise. He is the all-powerful one. All things are dependent upon God, including us. So we worship him as a response to his sovereignty. Third, we appreciate the greatness of God's power more and more as we seek him in our lives and our prayers. When things aren't happening as we would like them to or think they should, we go to God. In that process itself, he either answers the prayer, it falls out the way we hoped, or he changes our will to be accepting of whatever his will actually is. Fourth, we're humbled by the reality of God's mysterious grace. Why us? Why anyone? I think that's the question I ask myself the most. Why would I be given this salvation? I'm less deserving than just about everybody I know. How is it that he would show me this grace? This prompts me to want to obey his word. Knowing God's gracious, sovereign hand is upon us because we believe should prompt us, should prompt you to obedience. Finally, we are assured about our eternal life. God will finish the work that he has begun in us. We're not paralyzed by fear of the future. We know how messy it may become. It's still in his sovereign hands. We know whatever comes to pass is guided by his will and a glorious future awaits. God's glory always works out for his people's good. That's true for you, even when it doesn't feel like it in the here and the now. Kent Hughes said, Are you scandalized by God's exercise of sovereign choice? If you are scandalized by this, you do not understand grace. Grace that is earned is not grace at all. Grace goes to the undeserving. Grace comes at God's discretion, not our directives. And grace is there for you. If you will come to Christ, and if you do come, you will discover that all of it is from God beginning to end. Let's pray. Oh, oh, Father, you are sovereign. We are humbled by this, yet we are assured by this. We worship you because of this. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Amen.